Welcome to Finding the Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian company, Euros Hartleys. This is a podcast series where we take time out to get to know the story behind the people who front some of Western Australia's leading companies. We look back at some of the moments in their life and career that shaped the journey to being the leader they are today and provide you with some real insights into the way they think and approach things, both in business and in life. To get the volume adjusted in your car or your headphones sorted and settle in for a great story. Here is your Finding the Front host, Tim Banfield. Hey everyone, and welcome to the first Euros Hartley's Finding the Front podcast for 2023. We hope the year has kicked off well. Remember that as a leader in wealth management in WA, Euros Hartley's is here to assist if you would like to discuss your financial goals for 2023 and beyond. To learn more, please don't hesitate to visit our website at www.euroshartleys.com.au. So, let's get started with the main event. In this episode, we are hugely fortunate to have an absolute leader in their very specialist field join us on the show. Our special guest is Mr. Paul Anderson, CEO and Managing Director of ASX-listed regenerative medicine company, Orthocell, stock code OCC. Regenerative medicine, I hear you ask? Yes, that's right. Paul is a veteran of the regenerative medicine field, which is a technology that has emerged over the last 20 years. The focus began with using cellular therapy for the regeneration of damaged cartilage. This focus, combined with Paul's passion for his craft, has progressed through to the founding of Orthocell to commercialising a range of different products for nerve, bone, tendon, ligament cartilage and soft tissue repair and regeneration. And the story includes doing a multi-million dollar deal with one of the largest dental companies in the world today. This is a seriously great chat into entrepreneurialism and business building over the long term. We gain a look at Paul's background and how he arrived in his field of expertise with an overview of a journey that has so many insights and takeaways. So without further ado, it gives me a huge pleasure to introduce to Euros Hartley's Finding the Front the CEO and Managing Director of Orthocell, and a great guy, Mr. Paul Anderson. Paul, thanks for joining us on Euros Hartley's Finding the Front. It's awesome to have you, and thanks for taking the time out. Really appreciate it. No, it's my pleasure, Tim. Thanks very much for having me. Good on you. I've done a lot of reading into what's been going on with you and and Orthocell, and it's just fascinating. But before we get started, I just want to take the listener up into a bit of a helicopter to put a bit of context around and and position our conversation and then we'll get stuck into it. But just for the listener, Paul's the CEO and founding member of the ASX-listed regenerative medicine company, Orthocell. He has more than 25 years' experience in healthcare and is a veteran of the regenerative medicine field, having been at the forefront of this emerging technology over the past 20 years. He joined a startup biotherapy company called Verigen in 2000 and he led that introduction of an innovative cellular therapy for the regeneration of damaged cartilage. Now, this is quite a pivotal point, as you'll see as we get through to the podcast. In short, this innovative therapy has been used in thousands of people with great success, from professional athletes and weekend warriors 
to everyday mums and dads who just want to be able to keep doing the activities they love without pain, which is quite important. Paul's experience in helping patients regain movement and function developed a passion into expanding the potential benefits that regenerative medicine holds across a whole range of musculoskeletal conditions. In 2008, to follow that passion, Paul co-founded OrthoCell to pursue the passion of developing and translating innovative biological therapies. It's known as a regenerative medicine company dedicated to the development of breakthrough products for the treatment of musculoskeletal disorders. OrthoCell listed on the ASX in 2014 and has continued to commercialise a range of different products for nerve, bone, tendon, ligament cartilage and soft tissue repair and regeneration. It has established a world-class manufacturing facility here in Perth, licensed by the Therapeutic Goods Administration for the manufacture, can you believe it, of human tendon cells and cartilage cells for the regeneration of damaged tendon and cartilage. And it's also the facility that's certified for the manufacture of cell grow, which is relating to dental bone regeneration and the repair of damaged nerves. Unbelievable, really. What a story. We'll kick off and get back to that part in a minute. But Paul, wow, thank you for coming along. Can't wait to get into this. It's such a, for many, it's like a foreign area, right? And and what we're going to do today is learn about OrthoCell, but more importantly, the person behind it. So my take on it is that you were born in Perth and you grew up in the Fremantle area, or particularly East Fremantle. Yeah, correct. Uh, Mum and Dad originally housed us all in in East Fremantle and then in the later years we moved into Bicton, which, uh, you know, was a wonderful place to grow up and, um, you know, have many, many fond memories of mucking around down at the river and catching fish and um, school holidays were were a a full-blown affair. You come from a large family? Four children, so there's six of us in total, right. plus the animals, the cats and the dogs yeah. that we had. <laughs> so yeah, I've got an older sister, Nikki, and a uh, younger brother, Craig, and the, the youngest of the family, seven years younger than myself, is Marnie, my younger sister. Right, okay. And a family of six means mum and dad were pretty busy. What were they up to? Well, very busy. Mum worked in, the, in, in my grandmother's pharmacy, uh, a very old pharmacy called Truchet's Pharmacy in the city. Right. I'd uh, been there for over 100 years, and, and my dad... Uh, was a school teacher, but he had done probably 15 different professions and careers before that as well. So he was a guy that, that jumped around a bit and, and then settled on the school teaching scenario. Obvious question, but when you look at what your mum and dad were doing, pharmaceutical, working in a pharmacy maybe has some connection, but you know, look at your career in terms of health. Did anything come from your upbringing? Yeah, so my, my grandmother, and, and, and as a, an early female chemist in this state, and there wasn't many of them, she was a compounding pharmacist. Right. And so as a young kid, uh, we would spend a lot of time in the pharmacy. Uh, we'd count tablets. We would watch her make and compound different, different drugs and different bits and pieces in that chemist. In fact, she even made my own personalised zinc cream for, for, for playing cricket, you know, that she, <laughs> she made in front of me on the bench. So... I don't think there's any doubt that, you know, my grandmother's endeavours and, and pioneering endeavours as a female pharmacist played a very important role in um, my desire to be involved in healthcare and, and other health-related attributes. And your dad, he did a number of things? 
Yeah, so I mean, I remember one of the earliest jobs. He had a, a, a trucking contract with uh, you know one of the mine sites up in in the hills. There, he owned a um, hairdressing salon. He owned uh, you know a number of different enterprises. And and you know, I look back now and and I sort of think, okay, so the healthcare. Yeah, I can see that coming from my grandmother, yeah. and you know, really fascinating period of of time. But where did my entrepreneurial spirit come from? You know, that risk-taking approach. And, you know, I look back now and I think, well, 100% it came from dad. He was never showed any fear in changing pathways. Um, obviously, risk manage that and do it appropriately. But, you know, he really mixed it up. And uh, there's no question that that's been a strong influence on me. Wow. I tell you what, when you look at what your grandma did, it's quite pioneering. It was pioneering and, um, you know, there was very, very few female uh, chemists. She matriculated, as it was called in those days, from Perth Mod at the age of 15 and a half. Um, so very talented intellectual. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was quite a fascinating place to grow up in. We would catch the bus from school to meet mum in the city. Uh, I'd catch the bus from St Joseph's Pignatelli in, in, in Atterdale. Yeah. Uh, or Aquinas um, College in, in Manning and, and we'd go into the city and watch my grandmother work. It was fascinating stuff. Oh, good on you. You mentioned you went to Aquinas. Did you enjoy school? Yeah, I loved it. I mean, I was not a particularly focused scholar. You know, I, I was really into the sport and the camaraderie, you know, and that type of stuff. So, yeah, I, I loved school. I really enjoyed it. As I say, wasn't a particularly strong scholar until later in life, but, um, you know, enjoyed the camaraderie, enjoyed the sport. And what it really did for me was, as a, as, a, as a young guy that perhaps wasn't excelling scholastically, you know, where does your confidence come from? Where does your leadership capabilities come from? And, you know, for me, it's come from the sporting field. It's come from cricket. It's come from, you know, the, all the tactical elements involved in that game, all of the leadership elements in that game. And, you know, there's a saying, if you're the captain of the cricket team, you're going to upset someone on the day and you have to get used to that. <laughs> so uh, I think it's held me in very good stead from a leadership perspective is those attributes. And certainly from a confidence perspective, you know, I, I left school not really having a clear university pathway, uh, yet um, the confidence to, to stick at things and achieve them. Playing that sport taught you the power of team. Hundred percent. I mean, I think that um, you know we are all capable as individuals, but the the ability for us to combine our forces and to surround yourself with people that do things better than you do, right? So I'm a batsman. I'm not a bowler, and to be able to work in a multidisciplinary team, these lessons are directly relatable into into the corporate world. And I use analogies from from the cricket field almost every day in the office. Always trying to eke out singles. Oh, uh, well, you know, we like to hit a few sixes too. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're at school and you're finishing up at Aquinas, did you have, and we like to ask this on Finding the Front in terms of, did you have any ideas on what career path was jumping out at you at that point? Yeah, and the answer to that is zero. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So as a young guy, you know, I really, and this is why I relate to my scholastic performance at school at that time. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know where I, where I wanted to go. You know, what was my focus, you know, from, from a career perspective was, was zero. And I was very fortunate that my grandfather ran a, a successful trucking business to councils around the, around the place. And so uh, he enabled me to come into the, to the family business um, and not just to work for him, but to manage my own areas within that business. And so that really gave me uh, an understanding that I was capable and that, you know, I could be successful. 
And so I also realised that trucking was not for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, so I spent two years doing that and, and then went off to the UK to play some semi-professional cricket. And it was during that time I realised that uh, I'd fallen in love with a, with a very bright young thing. And uh, if I wanted to uh, maintain her focus and affection, that I needed to get my uh, act together. And so when I came back from the UK playing cricket, I, I then focused on going back to university. So that, that would be your wife, Nick? Correct, yes. Right, okay. <laughs> so so that, that came just sort of after school or after university? or Yeah, I, I met Nick in 1983 at Fanny's Wine Bar in Subiaco. Right. Um, truth be known, and just keep this between ourselves and the podcast, well, I was probably underage at that time. <laughs> <laughs> so Fanny's was a particularly um, handy place to go and have a glass of wine or a beer uh, and not get busted. So I met, I met Nick there and um, we formed an instant connection and, um, you know, we, we married some nine and a half years later. Oh, fantastic. So she's been a, a big part of the journey. She has indeed. And, um, you know, I remember talking to her when I was going to be, I, I decided to negotiate an exit from Genzyme to pursue our own pathway in our own company, an ortho cell. You know, I sat her down and I said, look, you know, this is risky. And she looked at me and she said, you know, if you and Prof Zeng are, uh, are the team that are doing it, I'm backing you 100%. So, um, you know, that was, that was a, a nervous moment also because it was real. We're doing it. <laughs> and we were on. And we are on. So, no, she's been a great supporter and like any relationship brings different skills to it, to, to what I have. You know, she's an accountant and she's a very good one. And so she brings a certain amount of financial due diligence to the, uh, to the relationship, which has been excellent. Oh, that's just fantastic. So leaving school. You did go and do a diploma of health science. Correct. Now, what took you, and this, for the listener, this is really where the theme of health starts with Paul. Yeah. And I'm just curious as to why you decided to go into health science when you didn't really know what you wanted to do. Well, I, I went back um, after I'd finished my cricket piece and, and travelled around Europe with Nick and got back and realised I had to go to university and I had to eke out a career and I still didn't really know what I wanted to do. Yes. So I did a mature age entrance examination. And I had no idea. My father at that time was a school teacher, so I just put down teaching. You had to list one, two, three, what you wanted to do. I can't remember what the other two were. Right. And because uh, I didn't think I had the confidence that I would do well at the test to get into to other, other pursuits. As it turned out, I was in the top 10 percentile of the state of the people who sat that test that year. But anyway, I dutifully went off to teachers at Edith Cowan, realised within the first semester that wasn't for me. So I was walking around slightly disillusioned on the campus and there in front of me was this shiny new building. And I walked into the shiny new building and it was the nursing school. And they'd just taken it at that time point out of the hospital system and put it into the universities. So it was a wonderful new building and had all these wonderful people running around doing some, some great looking stuff. And I thought, you know what, I really dig this stuff. I, I, I like science. I, I like medicine. I like healthcare. And so I, I switched over to, to, to do a nursing uh, degree and, yeah, then, then went on and worked as a nurse after that. Well, I was going to say, you went on and worked for, as a nurse for around five years. Mm. Tell us a little bit about what you learned as a foundation yeah. within that sector for your future career. Absolutely pivotal. Yes. Um, you know, I spent five years, I never worked on a ward. I only worked in the operating suites, slicing and dicing where the action was, as we like to call it. And so... This was fundamental and, and pivotal in, in my career. Yes. And so, you know, I was involved in orthopaedics, in gynecology, in neurology, in ophthalmology, general surgical vascular surgery, some, some heart surgery. 
So I had this incredible five-year span of learning all about surgeries, all about the interventions, gravitated towards orthopaedics. And then after about five years, started to get a little bit bored with the routine of nursing and was really looking for the next challenge in my life. Yes. And so I was dealing at that time point with a lot of orthopedic representatives. They would come and they would say, here's our knee replacement and this is how you're going to use it. Aha. Uh-huh. And I knew more about the anatomy and physiology than they did. Uh, I knew more about the operation than they did, generally speaking. And so I thought, you know, this is a career potential here for me to get into the sales side of it, the uh, representing, you know, these complex implantation systems to surgeons and doctors. I knew the ecosystem, I understood the anatomy and I understood the prosthesis that we were putting in. So just pause there. When you say the product side in this instance, mm. just tell us a little bit about what products you actually mean. Like for an operation, what yeah. constitutes so, a product? Yeah, so there's a whole range of different elements when you do an operation from and they involve consumables, they involve capital goods and they involve implantables. And so the capital goods are the machines that you use you know, like the breathing machines or the diathermy machine or the, the special gun or drill that you use for orthopaedics. So that's the capital goods side of it. And then the consumables are the, the plastics and the, re, you know, the, the single-use items, and they're all items that need to be sold into a system, yes. into a hospital. Yes. And then, of course, there's the implantable pieces, the joint replacements and, and screws and nuts and bolts and other bits and pieces like that. So, so they're the, the things that are in the sales domain within an operating suite. And you were dealing with these representatives coming in. Correct. To then talk to you about bringing them into the operating suite. Yes, and using them yes. in the operating suite. So my particular skill at that time point, after I graduated or moved into the industry side, was to educate a surgeon on how to use the product and or support him and the staff to use the products. And so because of the complexity... And you've got a number of different systems. The nursing staff and the surgeons themselves even need assistance on navigating their way through some of the particular elements of those knee replacements. Now, they're very good people and they're very talented surgeons. I'm not teaching them how to do the operation in situ, but we're assisting technically along the way, a part of a multidisciplinary team. Product expert in many ways. Product expert, product specialist, that's correct. Yep. So that, when you started to say, right, well, I need the new challenge, was where you then subsequently decided to go into a device, a medical device distribution company. Correct, yeah. And, As and on, on purpose to then start that career path. Correct, yeah. So, you know, that distributor that I worked for distributed capital goods, consumables and implants. And so I assessed that that was a good opportunity for me to have an even further rounded understanding of this industry so for the listener paul went on to work for a couple of years for stubborn medical in perth and representing their medical device into those areas which is quite interesting because following that you then went into verigen and now Mm. again if we can just take a little step back you went into there for what ended up being an eight-year period yeah with verigen from national sales manager for their products and I'll let you explain the product side, but it did come back to regeneration of human cartilage tissue. Correct. Through the managing director, then taking it through to a trade sale. So it's quite a fascinating period of your life. Just give us a little bit of an insight. Yeah, look, it sure was. And, um, you know, such a seminal moment for me to have, you know, the, the CEO of the European company. There was probably only about three people in the company at that time. 
based in Europe ring me and, and, and asked if I wanted to get involved in this new exciting field called regenerative medicine and in particular the regeneration of human cartilage tissue. So is this where it started? This is th- where it started. This is exactly the point where you went, right, I found it. This is the point, right. And, yeah. and well, I, I went and asked my father some advice because all of my colleagues said, you're mad, don't do it. You've got this great career pathway in orthopedics and in, in, in joint replacement, you should just stick with that rather than leave a solid job and move into a highly risky area. So just pause there, Paul. With the Stubborn Medical, you were representing orthopedic products. Correct. Yep. Yep. Into joint replacements like that sort of thing. Yep. And then into hospitals. And this is a total left field move. A left field move. So I went to my father and I said, look, Dad, you know, and I explained what the opportunity was and, you know, what, what I was currently doing and the successes that I was having. And he said to me, Paul, every now and then, mate, you get the opportunity to stick your head above your clouds and this is yours. Wow. Okay. So I thought, right, again. Um, I've got no choice now. <laughs> so no, I was really excited by that piece of advice from dad and I thought, yeah, I'm going for it. I'm going for it. So um, I resigned from, from the job and started up in a startup company um, that was developing a pioneering approach that was called autologous chondrocyte implantation or ACI. And that was the regeneration of human cartilage tissue with the knee. So in simple terms, simple, simple terms, what Verigen did was regenerate human cartilage. Correct. Yeah, and they were the very first company in the world to do it. And this was the start of regenerative medicine. medicine. So back in the year 2000, I didn't realise how early it was. Right? So we were right at the forefront of the regen med, at least bringing products to market. It was one of the first regenerative medicine products. And so, you know, that was a very exciting opportunity and it enabled me to help grow that business to attract the elements that I thought were necessary to make it successful, science, clinical, commercial. Yes. And so we really went about putting a team together. We then were able to negotiate reimbursement and approval for the product in Australia. First reimbursement in the world for a regenerative medicine product for cartilage repair. Just explain what reimbursement means. That meant that we were able to manufacture the product according to the Therapeutic Goods Administration. We were able to get a license for that. And once we had a license, it was like an approval for the product. We were then able to apply to have the product paid for by the private health insurers, okay. a reimbursable product. And what that means is that you get access to the clinic. You get access to the surgeons. In Australia, with about 50% private health care, that's 50% of the market. That is your ticket to distribution. That's your ticket to distribution and to effectively, eventually, trade sale as well. Okay. So we ended up generating over $10 million worth of revenue per year in that company. It was reimbursed for around $8,000 for each procedure. It was a very successful procedure. It helped a lot of people, both in ankles and knees. And it was a tremendous journey. So I learned an enormous amount about the corporate world as well, you know, making that transition from business development and engagement into, you know, the managing director's role and managing not just a a sales force, but also a manufacturing scenario, instrumental learnings uh, to enable us to achieve what we've achieved in OrthoCell. And so the success of that company grew to a point where, you know, we were approached for trade sale from a large uh, multinational American company called Genzyme at that time. And then we rolled out that trade sale. Coming from a sporting perspective or whatever perspective you like to use in terms of regenerating cartilage, what are some of the stories that came out of your first interaction with the technology, with Verigen and the impacts it was having? And what feeling did that provide 
in terms of what you were able to do to assist people's lives? Yeah, it's a really good question because it relates both to my time at Veritas and also my time at OrthoCell. Yeah. And you see, what we saw in that space in particular is the approach for surgeons or all they had within their armoury at that time point was very, very little. And there was a term that was called supervised neglect, right? So if you've got a damaged cartilage in your knee, it's really hard. It's tissue that can't repair itself, right? So once it's damaged, it's damaged for life. And so this was the first introduction of a cellular therapy designed to grow that cartilage in situ. And so when we went out and engaged with patients, they were desperate for a solution. When we went and engaged with surgeons, they were desperate for a new solution. And so what we provided was a very elegant solution, one that addressed the underlying pathology and provided them with the capability of regenerating their human cartilage. And that didn't interfere with the person as much as the standard typical operation? Well, the typical operation, you would just simply go in and debride the cartilage. You would remove all the loose and unstable tissue. You would then get a very sharp pick, like literally a sharp ice pick, and you would plunge it into the bone to evoke a bleeding response. And that was designed to try and heal the cartilage, but it didn't do that. It basically just put a little stopper in there. And so these patients would then break down again and they would have larger holes not smaller holes. Right. So it was quite a challenging area. Cartilage has been a challenging area, as has tendons and nerves, which we'll we'll talk about later. But for that particular instance, the regeneration, what process did that involve as an alternative? So that involved taking a small biopsy from a patient of their healthy tissue, extracting the building block cells from within that, and they're called chondrocytes, and you then take those chondrocytes to your laboratory and you grow them. You put them into a flask, you put them into an incubator, you feed them, you house them, you check their condition every couple of days and you return them in a better condition than they came in. It's like a hospital, a hospital system. It's a hospital for cells. We would then grab those cells and return them back to the surgeon who would then do a surgical implantation. But what our claim to fame was and what really provided us with the impetus to move into these new areas that we have was that one of the the challenges of that technology was how do we deliver it into the patient in an effective and minimally invasive way? So instead of doing a six-inch cut, how do you do it in a two-inch cut and effectively put those cells back in? And so we introduced the use of a collagen sheet that you could put the cells onto and then you could implant that collagen sheet with the cells attached to it into the patient. So that was kind of the big differentiator. Yes. For us, was the innovation that we applied in the delivery mechanism of those cells. And Genzyme saw that. And Genzyme saw that. And so they came knocking. We went through an exhaustive due diligence process. So I learned a lot about DD and about how to prepare packages for trade sale and how to value and how to run those processes. And uh, yeah, so then we completed that trade sale with them and and that company or it's now in a different company in the US but it's nearly a two billion dollar US company now. Gosh you had to move to Sydney for a couple of years for that to integrate. Yeah so when we trade sailed to Genzyme they handcuffed me for a period and to be quite frank it was good for me as well because it was big 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 multinational organization game right which is different to what I was used to. So it enabled me, you know, for 18 months I moved into, I I headed up the biologics for the Pacific area and Australia, Asia Pacific, and they had a couple of other biological products. So that was a really fantastic learning period, but it was never my passion to work in big big pharma. It was really do what I had to do, 
to commit to the trade sale pieces and then it was time to get out. Paul, that's a good part to just maybe just move a little bit sideways and examine the role of a biotech company emerging Mm -hmm. and the role of big pharma. Now, in this case, we've got a big pharmaceutical company coming in and, and buying a smaller one to get access to their technology. That then gets distributed globally. Yeah. And that's the almost like the biotech is the incubator. Yeah, correct. But, and the big pharma come in to acquire, and they must have their slide rule out over a number of smaller yeah. biotech companies. Yeah, what large pharma doesn't do very well outside of the making drugs is incubate new technology of this, of this type and regenerative medicine. They're not nimble enough. Their matrix organisational structures almost inhibits the innovation. And so they really rely on groups like ourselves that are innovative, they're experienced in the space, they understand how to manufacture it and can really drive the innovation. And then they come in and they scoop those up. And that's, that's really how the model works. Yes. Tell me, so this is the last stop before we start Orthocell. Mm-hmm. Where did the formation or the ideas start to enter your mind around, right, I'm ready to go out and do my own thing. I need to understand the pathway. I pretty much understand the pathway now. Where did it all start now? Like we're two years into you merging the two together. Yeah. You've done that. Yeah. So, you know, you, you begin to realise as you go through these experiences or after you go through some of those experiences that you actually have accumulated a tremendous amount of knowledge and that that knowledge is unique globally. And we found ourselves right at the forefront of musculoskeletal regenerative medicine and some of the ideas and concepts around that. So we started to think about after the trade sale and a little bit before about what's the next opportunity? You know, what's the next tissue type that would fit this model? And that for us very clearly was tendon tissue. Very problematic tissue, very difficult to treat rather than just cutting it out. And so we sort of started to look at areas that would fit product development that fitted our knowledge base. And for us, it was very, very simple that tendon was an area of huge clinical need. There was very little innovation in the space. And we had a knowledge set that we felt we could really make some differences and make some changes in that space. And how did you proceed with that, though? Well, I I negotiated an exit from Genzyme and I said my old role as managing director is now gone. I'm now an APAC guy and I negotiated a redundancy. Right. And we made that decision. We negotiated that redundancy. Gave you a bit of breathing space. Gave me a bit of breathing space, correct. And effectively that redundancy was all invested back into, um, you know, as I tell you the story, I mean, I I resigned, I think in in February. Um, I had three children at private school or, you know, two and a half at private school. You know, there's an old saying, when you're not working, you're hemorrhage. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's be clear, the, um, the, the pressure was on. So I put together a business plan and sought venture capital. You know, I had a budget of about, for probably for about eight months to last me for eight months before I would have had to go on and get another job. And we raised the venture capital about six and a half months in. And... That's the start of Orthocell? That's the start of Orthocell. And that's when the first capital came in and we started to, you know, develop the intellectual property. We negotiated with the university to take that intellectual property that had been developed at a very basic level with Profiting, the fellow founding member of Orthocell. And so we had our, our foot on the IP and then we just started to invest in the development of that IP both within the university and outside of the university. So the IP, if we just focus on that for a moment, how did you 
find the IP? Was it? Did it come to you? Did you have a relationship with? And for the listener, we refer to Professor Zeng, who has been a long time partner of Paul's, correct, and and an integral part and co-founder of Orthocell. Mm. If we could just bring that together, how did that unfold to get into where you are now? Because the story from here just keeps growing. Yeah. So I. Once I was tapped on the shoulder and said, do you want this opportunity at Verigen and back in 2000, I very quickly realised that I needed a clinical head and I needed a scientific head as well. And so Professor David Wood was the clinical side of it, Fiona Wood's brother. Right. Uh, Professor Fiona Wood's brother. And Prof Singh was the science scientist. He's a pathologist by trade, profession, but he was working as a researcher in the university. So we partnered together, uh, the three of us, to grow the, the cartilage business. And so... Prof Zeng in his university hat was developing these other ideas around tendon regeneration and around collagen medical devices. Which corresponded with your idea. Which corresponded with our ideas, right? So we were sort of working together and and, and I guess what we sort of pioneered was this collaboration between industry and the university. It's quite common now. It wasn't then. No. right. So for, for, for us to pay the university to do research for us and for the university to do research that was focused on a commercial outcome was very rare or much rarer. And so there was two very basic pieces of intellectual property that was that were there. We had tabs on that. We did a license and acquisition agreement with the university and began. I then once I had that, I could then raise the capital because you need the IP as a base to convince people to give you the money. Yes. And then we started off on the on the journey of of creating a manufacturing facility and learning about our craft, our innovation. Really interesting. So with regards to the underlying goal or aim of orthocell where did the name come from we just felt that you know cellular therapies were going to have an increasingly role a role to play in orthopedics okay and in musculoskeletal medicine and so ortho orthopedic cell is where we came up with so orthocell was was born and that company then focused on the regenerative medicine products for the regeneration of human bone tendon and nerve tissue correct and that was the basic start that was the basic start yeah yep. so we 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 you know sort of if you want to separate it into two product portfolios you have a collagen based medical device which is an implantable absorbable material that helps tissue to grow and to heal in a better way okay and then on the other side of the business was the cellular therapy where we're taking stem cells effectively and growing them and re-implanting them so one's a medical device and the other one is a cellular therapy. Okay. We're in 2008, 2009 at this point. Mm-hmm. The business starts to grow. But it's not easy in terms of you've got to attract funding to keep the show rolling. Yep. And one of the key parts of that is production and understanding the role around building a good company, a great company, yep. and the pillars that you needed in place. Tell us a little bit about that. You talked about the f- three kids at private school. Yeah. You know, things are now moving. You've managed to raise some money. Wh- where did the money come from? And who were the people that wanting to, s- well, when I say people, organisations, that wanted to be involved with a, such a pioneering effort? Well, certainly there was very, or well, much fewer venture capital opportunities then than there is now. Yeah. And we were very fortunate that we tapped into a chap called Har- Howard Rosario from Westgame, which was one of the Western Australia's largest super uh, groups, um, put together a, a startup fund. It was really a pre-seed fund to try and capitalise on opportunities coming out of the university. 
And so we, we were able to get some funding from those guys uh, and then that, that was run by a group called Stone Ridge Ventures which was run by a guy called Rob Newman, who's just sold Nearmap for, uh, I think, right. $1.5 billion. So okay. he's a legend uh, and he backed us. And he said to me, Paul, I understand your technology, but I'm backing you too, Prof yes. Singh and yourself. That's what we're investing in. So we went away and then with that funding, tried to leverage that funding up as much as possible as you do. You've got a little kitty, how do I leverage that up? And we felt that one of the really important elements of the journey here and the, and the development of the discoveries that we've done and the manufacturing of the products that come from those discoveries is to own your own manufacturing facility. But that doesn't come cheaply. To build what's called a good manufacturing practice facility costs millions of dollars. So I approached the then Carpenter government for some non-discretionary funding. So it wasn't allocated anywhere. They just plucked it out of the budget. And they gave us a grant that enabled us to build our own facility at Murdoch University. And there's a bit of a story there as well because, you know, the $400,000 grant that we got or whatever it was close to that, something like that, doesn't build you a GMP facility. So Prof Singh and I thought, okay, we want the facility. Venture capital don't like investing in facilities. They want to invest in technology. Yes. So we went off to China and we sourced a clean room ourselves. We shipped it out here in two 40-foot containers. We had four Chinese guys come out here on working visas and they built it in three weeks. Is that right? Damn near killed us. <laughs> <laughs> but they actually built it in three weeks, four weeks. And you call this a clean room? It's a clean room. Yeah, a clean it enables room. you to manufacture products in the highest possible standard. Okay. So its air quality is monitored. Air exchange is monitored. You have to gown up in there. And bearing in mind that when you're talking about cellular therapies, you're talking about human stem cells or human cells, you can't steam sterilise that. You can't gamma radiate that. So every practice you have to do inside that room needs to be clean and you need to keep bad stuff out, good stuff in, and you need a lot of really high-end quality system to be able to manage and that for it to function. And that got built in three weeks? The frame got built in three weeks and we commissioned it probably about three months later. Gee. So uh, it, it was quite a, a, a risk at the time, but it was a calculated, educated risk and one that really has been an enabler for this whole company. So from that perspective, that is where you've subsequently gone on to develop not only the ortho ACI, which is the mm. cartilage yep. growth and that sort of thing, yep. but then the new products have come on from there. Yeah, correct. So I just want to come back and one of the key points that I've noted with biotech companies in my research is patents mm -hmm. or patents. Yep. I note that OrthoCell's got something like over a hundred patents globally. Yeah. yeah. And that's been over the course of since inception, which is back in 08. Yeah, correct. And you've accumulated these patents. Mm. It seems like an extraordinarily large number of patents. Yeah. So how, how to define that is it's five patent families. Right. And then as you file those patents in different jurisdictions, they all add up then. So it's not a hundred different pieces of intellectual property, it's five different pieces, five families that then you are able to grow like a tree, basically. Yes. And you can you have offshoots and divisionals and all these different pieces. So five specific families and that involves tendon, it involves cartilage, it involves combinations of the two, and it involves manufacturing. 
So how we manufacture these products, the the secret recipes, the secret approaches, that's in the in the in the patterns as well. And that is the IP of Orthocell. Correct. For global distribution. So, you know, in, intellectual property is a very, very important part of the pie. Right. And so when you, any company is doing due diligence on you, one of the very first boxes that they need to tick is about intellectual property. Can we protect it? Is it protected? How long is left on that patent? And that helps value the business also. So, you know, I, I learned from a very early stage that patenting is really important and you need to devote time to it. And it's not black and white. It is a craft. You need to craft your patent. You need to, you know, expose certain elements and not other elements. You need to be able to create patents and you, you, you need to work with a strong patent attorney to complement the science, the commercial understandings which craft it. And we've been working with Griff, Griffith Hack and in particular a chap called Stuart Boyer. Uh, so between Stuart, Prof Zeng and myself, you know, we, we, we've, if I may say, smashed it out of the park <laughs> <laughs> with regard to patents, you know. So for the listener, just explain what that value means to the Orthocell company because it has clearly been developed over time. Mm. It is your technology yeah. and your idea or your idea yeah. and technology put into place. Mm-hmm. The clean room where the manufacturing's done yeah. has all sort of come together, but these patents have been developed over that yeah. time. Yeah. And yeah. what value does that provide? Oh, look, it, it, it underpins the whole business. Right. You know, so it's, it's like trying to make a cake without a tin. Right? You, you, you need to encapsulate your technologies in, in intellectual property. It does a number of things. It values you, but it also protects you. Uh, so it protects you from people having a go at your technology. It gives you a, a position within the market, and that position has value, and that's been proven to be the case. And so, you know, you have to have a well-elucidated plan. Uh, you need to execute on that plan, and you need to have patents that cover a variety of different elements of your business, not just one linear piece, because otherwise people come around the side or over the top or underneath. Yes. So you've got to kind of ring fence things from a patenting perspective, and so that's where the art and the craft comes into it. And that really is a fundamental element in your technology. If we could take our technologies, the best technologies in the world, we could go and want to sell that in the US. The very first question they say is, show me your patents. If you don't have that, you've lost credibility. You you don't have a protection piece and anyone can pinch your manufacturing. Got it. Paul, going back a step uh, through the development of OrthoCell, you clearly have helped a lot of people along the way. As the words got out, tell us a few stories about how you've been able to assist people. As the words got out, oh, Orthocell, you should try that. You know, it's sports people. Yeah, it's, it's been a fundamentally pleasurable part of the business. There's yeah. no question about it because what we want to do is we want to evoke change. We want to be able to make a difference to people's lives. We want them to be empowered to live the fullest that they can. And what we're really about is regenerating mobility, if you like. You know, there's been a number of examples of, of um, you know, from a cellular therapy perspective, both at the professional sports end, you know, um, Mark Lacroix, who we treated, uh, Daniel Kerr, we treated, uh, Michael Mitchum, the Olympic diver, um, a New Zealand downhill mogul skier, silver medalist, can't remember his name now, but tremendous bloke, had horrible knees from mogling that we fixed. So there's that professional sports end, which you know, has, um, you know, in Mark Lacroix's case, enabled him to play on for another four or five years and, you know, bring great value to the club and bring great value to himself. So that's a great story in itself and, and such a wonderful bloke. But then, you know, the, the majority of the people that we treat are mums and dads and people that just needed to survive and work. And, uh, you know, from our cellular therapy for, for tendon, you know, the, the tendon work, we had a lady who was a CAD designer. She had bilateral tendon issues in her elbows. She couldn't work anymore. 
She was a sole parent. She had a mortgage to pay. So we treated her. You know, we took the biopsy, we grew the cells, we returned them, inject them. And she's been working back at that CAD machine for, for six years now. But the pat- most particular strong impact on me for the patients that we've treated is when we developed our, our nerve repair product. And, you know, that nerve repair product um, has facilitated patients in regaining function of paralysed limbs. And, you know, we treated a patient by very pioneering method where these patients have, um, it's called tetraplegia, it's a quadriplegic, but they can still breathe. And so they have a C5, C6 fracture in their neck, which means they can still use their lungs, but they can't use their arms. And so we've pioneered an approach with some surgeons as well, where we take nerves that come from above the fracture site and we're re-plumbing them back into these paralysed limbs and muscles in their arms. And what that's, that's doing is repowering their arms, enabling them to move their fingers and to move their wheelchair. And one particular patient that you know, really caught my heart was he wasn't able to wheel himself into the surgeon's rooms when we, f- we first met this chap. And 18 months later, he drove his own car down to our office and, you know, we got him to speak to, the, to, to our, our staff and, and he spoke about being able to use his mobile phone again. He spoke about being able to toilet himself again. He spoke about being able to hug his children again. He spoke about his mental health issues, his worthlessness that he felt. And this procedure, which was very avant-garde procedure using a very avant-garde product that we've developed, a very unique product to help join these nerves together, in a much more efficient and better way. You know, he said it's changed his life completely. And obviously having the fracture to start with did, but for him to drive his own car down and for me to open his door and say, do you need a hand? He said, get lost. <laughs> 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 of course, he's joking. You know, he's, 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 and that's a demonstration of where he was at as, as mentally. He was so empowered and so proud to come down to our office and show what our staff had made and what we have developed and what we've created, what that manifests itself in his, his outcome was, was a really powerful moment. Gosh, so for the listener, Paul's body language is just infectious. He's so enthusiastic about this. Now, the product that Paul's talking about is one of the new developments within the organisation, which is Remplier. And nerves just expand on the nervous system the nerve system in terms of the importance of it, but then how you're able to, and for an untrained mind like mine, the ability to join a nerve. And compared to if it was a problem to join a nerve before, how have you overcome that problem? Yes, yeah, so I, I think the, the nervous system is, is, you just think about like in your house, you've got your plumbing and you've got your electrics. And it's very similar in the body, you know, the electrical signals that are sent from the, from the brain via the spinal cord and the peripheral nerve system enable us to, to touch and feel and, and move and, and, and create and be mobile and enable us to do the activities of daily living. So if you have an impairment to that, so if you get hit with a chop with an axe and cut something off or if you break your neck and, and you, your nerves don't go into your limbs anymore, then you can suffer from either sensory deprivation or motor deprivation. So you can't move it or you can't feel. And the method of healing two nerves together, because they will regrow and they take a long time, but they do regrow. And the way that surgeons had been doing it or are still largely globally doing it, and we're looking to change that, is getting a needle and thread 
and plunging that needle and thread into this very precious nerve tissue and joining them together by a needle and thread. And we know that that is, by and large, a fairly primitive approach. It's a little bit archaic, but it's, it's all, all that's there at the moment. And so we felt that there was a really strong clinical need to do that better. And the sutures, when you put them into the nerve, create scar tissue. Right. So it's a ball of tissue sitting within the nerve that inhibits it from growing. Right. You can't get the nerve across that scar tissue. Yeah. It goes around and creates inconsistencies in outcome. You might suture one nerve and it's good. You might suture the other one, it's shocking. And so that's a very frustrating thing for patients and it's very frustrating for surgeons. And so we felt that there had to be a better way. And one of the key issues with these nerve injuries is that the nerve itself is damaged. And so even when you resect the nerve and you join it back together with sutures, it, the outer coverage is gone of the nerve. It's called the epineurium. And so we developed a product that was enabled surgeons to mimic the epineurium. The, the membrane is like the outside of the nerve, and that does several things. It enables the surgeon to reduce or negate the use of sutures, so it's very sticky. It sticks together. It's like a Band-Aid, if you like, and enables those nerves to be joined together very specifically, very accurately and very neatly with a great reduction in sutures, so you get less scar tissue, and as a result, you see more consistency of outcome. And when you say consistency of outcome, that's more consistent growth. Yeah, more consistent of, of growth. Of the mending Correct. of the nerve. Correct. And that yeah. membrane must be quite strong to be able to hold it in place. Because what? if we're talking about sutures. Yep. One of its key attributes yep. is we've created this incredibly delicate piece of tissue that is really strong and you can't pull it apart. So it's natural collagen. It's very, very pure. It's very strong and it happens to mimic the tissue that we're trying to replace or the outside of it. And the, the structure of the membrane has got these collagen fibres and we describe those collagen fibres as elegant railway tracks to enable the actions to grow and the nerve to grow. So it reduces the number of sutures, it mimics the epineurium, it gives more consistency of outcome and it contains the nerve and all the goodies that are required to heal that nerve in what we call a bioactive chamber. And so there's a number of within elements the body. within the body. So it enables the surgeon to do it faster, more quickly, more efficiently, with less trauma, mimicking the tissue that was there before. Paul, how long has Remplia, which is what you're talking about, mm. been on the market for? It's only just come onto the market in November last year. And okay. so this is a very new technology. Yeah. And, you know, when I, I originally visited one of the surgeons involved, a, a guy called Dr. Alex O'Byrne, a wonderful, wonderful surgeon, fantastic hands and a very strong desire to make an impact on, the, on his patients. And I went to him with this collagen membrane. I said, Alex, you know, what, what do you think about using this in tendon surgery? And he said, well, if you could develop one for nerves, I'm all over it. So we went away and developed a product that suited the nerve, the nerve application. And so that was about four years ago. And so we've gone through a clinical study. We've now received approval for the product in Australia last year. And we've received reimbursement for the product in November. And so this is, um, we realised that this nerve work was very impactful. And so Dr. O'Byrne started using it in the peripheral nerves and the, you know, around the wrist and the elbow and shoulder, and then up to the shoulder where it's more complex. And then he came to us and he said, look, there's a group of patients called tetraplegics who have paralysis of their upper limb. And there's a new pioneering approach called nerve transfer, where you're transferring good nerves into bad areas but they suffer from inconsistency of outcome and it's not quite right. And so 
the joining of them is problematic. And so we're now using our membrane, our collagen remplier, to join the two nerves together in nerve transfer work, which is now providing the ability for surgeons to help repair paralysed limbs effectively. And so it's a really groundbreaking moment for our company. It's certainly been life-changing for the patients who have received this technology. And our job now really is to drive this into the international markets and make an impact in, in, in the US. And that's what we're really focused on at the moment. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, that is so insightful, but so advanced. It must feel interesting in terms of your everyday life when you talk about that with yeah. the likes of Dr. Alex O'Byrne. Must it, give it, you, it, almost a, give you shivers in what it can do. It's an incredible journey. And I sometimes query and wonder, how, how, do I, how am I here? Yeah. And how do we get here? But what I've also learned is that when you take risk and when you set yourself apart at a very early stage in a pioneering development phase of any new technology or any new regenerative medicine approach, vicariously through that, you end up being a leader in the thoughts around innovation in that area. And we're now on a 20-year journey now that has seen us develop, learn, win, fail, investigate every single other collagen membrane in the world and understand that they're not fit for purpose. And so, you know, that knowledge that we've gained puts us in the very forefront of this industry. And sometimes you have to sort of take a step out of your own space and do podcasts like this to understand that you are actually at the front of the, the forefront of the industry and that you do contain theories and ideas that are relevant to the development of new exciting technologies such as this. So Rempley is one, and the other one that I noted that you're doing is Striat. Yeah. Striat Plus. Yeah. Which is dental bone regeneration, of all the things. Yeah, well, that's, it's interesting, <laughs> isn't it? So um, we've gone from nerves yeah. to dental bone regeneration. And for the listener, this has been a pretty significant part of the orthocell business as it's grown. Mm. It's recently done a large deal with a one of the largest dental companies in the world. Correct. BioHorizons, which ended up generating a cash payment in return for distribution of some $23 million. Yeah. And I will go into just a little bit around what dental bone regeneration is, mm. but this is all stemmed out of the early days of Orthocell. And the, that, to your point, you've continued to grow, test, yeah. fail – Yep. Fail being a key criteria, mm -hmm. get back up and start again. And have another go. Another, a number of times. Mm. How many failures do you think you've had in the course of this pathway? Oh, well, Prof Zen came to me at one stage and he said in the development of the Cell Grow platform, he said, I can't do it. I said, I can't crack it. You know, we, we couldn't get it the way we wanted to get it that was going to be required to be a successful product. And, you know, I just said no. I said, no, we, we, we are going to do this and we need to think about it differently. And so we went away down to Margaret River for the weekend and we just got it out of our jackets, if you like, and started to think about something. And I, and I can't tell you what the solution was, but we found a solution. And that solution was to do with our manufacturing, the chemicals and all these other things as part of our intellectual property. So I don't want to you know, talk in detail, but it doesn't, no, sure. it's not relevant. Yep. What's relevant about it is that you know, there's challenges that you face every day every single day and you can have the very best product in the world and go nowhere with it if you don't have other elements that you bring into it through you know all of the you know the commercial the clinical the product the regulatory you know reimbursement and you can have the best product in the world but if you can't get it reimbursed then you you're probably barking up the wrong tree 
So there's multiple challenges that we face every day. And certainly from the Australiate Plus perspective, which is our dental product, we're not a dental company, but we just happened to develop a product that was very good for bone regeneration. And so we looked at monetizing that opportunity at an early stage because one of the biggest challenges that a small company from Australia, or a growing company, I should say, from Australia, has is access to international markets. You know, what's your off-take agreement? Who's going to take this and bring it to the world market? So we were really looking for in this dental space. And what the product is, is that you may be familiar with dental implants, which is the metal implants that go into areas where you've lost a tooth. When when you lose a tooth, very often you lose the bone beneath that tooth. And it reabsorbs because you, you need to be impact, 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 impact. That's what gets you your bone stock. Yes. That stimulates bone growth. And so when you don't have that, the bone regresses. And so you have to put a bone graft in grafting material but for that bone grafting material to be successful there's you have to have a cover on it and that cover has to be a barrier to the outside world and there's other products in the market that do that very well but what differentiates ours is that ours produces faster more consistent bone regeneration so it covers the bone it keeps the outside world out but the fibers that we've created in this collagen membrane actually integrate into that bone and stimulate the bone growth. Paul, just pause there. Did you design this bone growth for teeth or did you actually design it for everyday bones? We designed it for everyday bones, but the first application was in teeth. By chance? It was a regulatory piece, right? Right. So there was a regulatory pathway that we felt was favourable for the dental application first. And, and we did that in the European to market. To make it commercial. To make it commercial. And yes. to give our company a win and to get it, get it in market generating revenue. And you've got to think about that stuff. You yes. know, you can, you can keep it all sweet and blurry and, and lovely, but you've got to look after the backyard, basically. Yes. So, as I said, we're not a dental company. We created a really nice dental product. And again, the themes are very similar. The surgeon tells us it gives him a more predictable and a faster outcome and a more consistent outcome, more mature bone at a faster time point. And so that data and the surgeons that we had advocating on our behalf because they loved what they were using and what they were seeing, then we started a process to monetize that opportunity. And that eventuated in BioHorizons, the fourth largest dental company in the world, doing significant due diligence on our company, both from a data perspective and from a manufacturing perspective and indeed ourselves, personnel. And to the point where they were prepared to pay $23 million for an exclusive license and distribution agreement. So we continue to manufacture the product, we sell the product to them, and that capital up front is unencumbered. We can use that and do whatever we want with it. So the company's well positioned? So we're currently, I think it's about $27 million bucks in the bank. We're extremely well positioned. We've got, as I say, the offtake agreement, so we're going to be generating further revenues. You know, it's a really exciting period for us. And as a company that's been, you know, in tough markets, you know, to have in a position where we've got you know, products approved in Europe, Australia and America, you know, and an innovative, incredible product for nerve repair in Australia and then moving now moving to the US, we're now free to control our destiny and to really manage the development of our technologies into the US and beyond with comfort now. I have no doubt, Paul, you probably spent a fair bit of time in the plane pre-COVID. Correct. I, I certainly did. And COVID was uh, an incredible u- recharging moment for us, to yes. be quite frank. We had raised some capital just before COVID. So we had um, we raised $20 million round to help drive the dental product. We did that. So the travel was incredible. We spent a lot of time setting things up. 
for this sort of a deal. Then when COVID came along, we were able to continue that pathway because we'd already established a lot of those relationships. So we didn't suffer too much through COVID and it meant that I didn't have to travel very much. And the family was happy? The family was delighted uh, after a little while. (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 no. That was great. Then they were happy to see you back on a plane, were they? No, no. It was a great period actually, you know, spending some, some time with family after many years of travel. That's all started up again now, though. We've got a full program this year, but we're, we're charged up and super excited about where we're heading with it all. Paul, I just wanted to sort of think about that in light of, if you go right back and you're at Aquinas mm. and you think, well, I don't really know what I want to do, but I find it fascinating that you didn't know what you didn't want to do and you went away and played cricket for a while in England and, mm. and hats off to that. That's, that's a fa- fantastic mm. achievement. But to come back and join Edith Cowan University in a teaching degree after the first half of a, or first semester, you think, oh, it's not for me, and, and walk into the nursing suite yeah, and found that it was quite new and exciting and you found your calling. Yeah. And here we are talking about these things that mm. you've been able to develop and make a serious impact on people's lives along with Professor Zeng mm. and the team. And you're dealing now in international markets on behalf of, in essence, a grant that came from WA yep. in the early days, which was such amazing foresight when you think Incredible. they took a chance and, they, and they've been rewarded. Mm. But you are one of the companies that is a shining light in terms of a global position. Mm. Does it give you a bit of a buzz? Oh, it's a tremendous buzz and, and, you know, to, you know, I still joke that I'm not sure what I want to be when I grow up, but, you know, I think, and I look back and I think about, you know, what's my mother's influence here and, you know, mum used to always say, you know what, Paul, with regards to your schooling and all that sort of stuff, just be well-mannered, you know, be polite, be earnest, work hard and it'll all work for you. It'll all be good. And, you know, that's something that I've incorporated into my whole life and, you know, how did I get the original phone call from Verigen from the CEO in the US was he felt Australia was, was a good environment to develop these technologies and he rang a professor of orthopaedics and said, who do you think I might talk to that might be able to help me here and do this? And he said, me, Paul Anderson. And because I know that I worked for him very hard, yes, that I was very polite, very respectful, very knowledgeable, immersed myself in everything that we did and was able to drive those sorts of things forward. So you know, that's a, a moment that I look at and I have spoken to the kids at Aquinas since then. Yes. Just about that, you know, that there's so many elements to life and manners and goodwill and purposefulness and work ethic and don't whinge and scratch and bitch and tell people to, you know, nick off, you know, be humble and, and work your way through issues. And, uh, and that's been a philosophy that has come from school, has come from parenting, and as I've been able to apply in my professional life. Good on you, Paul. Thanks for sharing that. That's really, really insightful. And the fair bit of common sense there came from your mum. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> well, keep it simple. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what's quite interesting for the listener is Paul's evolved Orthocell and does have a couple of other roles now in terms of becoming founding board members for two interesting companies, Mitre Therapeutics and Marine Biomedical. We won't spend too much time on this, but I just wanted to expand a little bit to say, well, what you've learnt, others want to learn from you, and you're putting some of that expertise into these new initiatives, building on the Orthocell experience. 
And I think with regards to if we just talk about, say, for example, because I saw an article on this too on marine biomedical, which involves, again, Professor Zeng. Yes. But also the use of making artificial bones out of mother of pearl shell. Yeah. From one of Western Australia's pearl farms, Willie Creek Pearls up north. Correct. Yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's a great story. It's um, And a shout out to Rob and Deb Banfield. Yeah, no, they do great work up there. Yeah. It's a wonderful part of the world and sensational pearls that they produce as well. But, I mean, what um, marine biomedical is about is, is you know, I spoke at, uh, about OrthoCell's experience in, you know, doing exhaustive searches of what products were out there currently offerings in this space. And likewise, we did that in marine biomedical to have a look at the bone substitutes that are out there. And we have some innate knowledge due to our, our other products. Yeah, And we also found when doing that search that, by and large, a lot of them were just not fit for purpose. They were space fillers. They weren't bone regenerators. You know, just packing a hole as opposed to actually having a positive impact on the bone growth. And Nacre, which is the byproduct of the mother of pearl shell when it's crushed, has some very, very unique mineralization. Just expand on that. Nacre is the key point. Yeah, so Nacre is the product that when you crush the mother of pearl and it becomes, you know, Nacre is the stuff that goes in paint and it goes in sparkly cars. And it gives you that. It's the it's the mother of pearl, which has been it's the shell yes. that's been crushed down. Yes. And so, a prof Zeng at the university developed a way of chemically treating that mother of pearl or that nacre, and turning it into a bone substitute because nacre or mother of pearl is probably as close to human bone as anything out there in the world today. Extraordinary. It is extraordinary, and we also happen to have an incredible environment on the north, an incredibly clean seas, amazing pearling industry. And so we started to look at it. We got some nacre from up there and then started to run the program and, and it really excited us. And what we saw was something that we felt was could be disruptive in the bone substitute space and really make a big impact and change the way, you know, the type of product that people use in that space. And it's a billions of billion dollar market. It's, it's very large internationally. And so we looked at about partnering and then getting some, some funding. Intellectual property, of course, as we mentioned earlier on, was tied away. And then we partnered with Willie Creek and, um, you know, sought some investment. We got that investment through them. And now the company is marching along. You know, we're past the prototype stage. I visited the clean room that's um, been shipped up to Broome. And so, again, you know, the manufacturing process we're going to keep in-house, it's going to be in Broome, you know, which is a unique opportunity for, the, for regional Western Australia and for regional Australia. And it, all, of course, enables us to tap into a multitude of grants for that area. Has that occurred? Have you had the similar sort of experience with regards to government grants? Absolutely. So, you know, the team at Marine, I'm on the board, and I'm not executive, but I'm non-exec, but uh, the team has been great and we've, we've managed to get, you know, quite some value out of the grants from both the state and the, the federal government and, and it's right up there, alley. You know, this is a tremendously impactful product potentially that comes from a, a raw material that's pretty much not used, that's growing on our doorstep of the highest quality. So it's just a tremendous story about Australia, about raw material and about innovation. Oh, well, stay tuned, Paul. Absolutely. It's an exciting one. I'm mindful of time and we've had a good chat and it's been just fascinating insights. And I just want to say, you know, what a career, right? And that we've had a number of different you know, walks of life through the podcast. And this is just gives us another chapter of a guy who started out in an area and has just made the most of what was given to him. I was reading some of the documentation and I picked this up in terms of 
what I think encapsulates a bit about you is passionate about building expertise and ecosystems of our industry, innovating for patient benefit and state and national net benefit. I thought that really does sort of cap it off. Yeah. I, think, I think it really wraps up what you've been able to do because there's no doubt we're seeing benefits in all those areas. Just moving a little bit to the left, I know you're a passionate cricketer. We talked about it. You've managed to rack up a few games down at the Swanbourne Cricket Club. I have. You're getting up to it's close to 250 now. So there's been some, <laughs> been some work put into that. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Yeah, no, it's a great. I, I still love it. You know, I, I think, you know, we live busy, dynamic lives and, uh, you know, you, you need an escape. And, and for me, cricket is my meditation. Cricket is my reset. It's an incredibly tactical game. There's so many intricacies and it enables you to really immerse yourself in something on a Saturday afternoon. And, of course, I, I, part of the reason I'm still playing, both of my, my boys are down there uh, playing cricket. I've been fortunate enough to play with both of them. They're now in much higher teams than I am. I'm in the, the, the more elderly bracket. <laughs> um, but it's equally my passion around, around industry and innovation and entrepreneurship is not dissimilar to my passion with the cricket club. Yes. And what we do there is provide safe, clean, our wonderful environments for youth and others to create and understand the benefits of teamwork, to understand that if you put in an effort, you're going to get something out of it. And it's those basic ethos that, you know, my mother and my grandmother and my father and whatever family and school taught me is, is what we try and get across into the, into the cricket club. And that breeds success and it breeds enjoyment. I've seen many people within that environment who lack self-esteem grow wings. And I love it. It's, uh, it's a great, great place to be. And Allen Park and Swanbourne is one of the, the world's greatest cricket grounds. <laughs> it's certainly a beautiful The spot. home of cricket, we call it. <laughs> <laughs> Just talking about your kids. So you've got three kids. You've got two boys, Toby and Oscar. Yeah, Toby and Oscar. Oscar um, is, uh, he's 20. He's just started a, a mechanical apprenticeship with Mercedes. Toby is uh, finishing a human resources degree at, at Curtin Uni graduating this year and my daughter molly is living in melbourne she's a interior architect wow um, and so she's working for a company over there and we miss her dearly but you know it's where she needs to be yes look and we asked this question and it, i'd be really interested in your views because of what a rewarding career you've had but how have you been able to balance work and life over the years yeah it's um it's it's an essential piece i mean there was many years there probably a four-year gap where i didn't really have any holidays and that's not healthy certainly realise that and uh, so now we we devote time throughout the year to make sure that I get time with my wife and with the children and and sometimes on my own as well. I play cricket, actively involved, uh, we're boaters, we love our fishing. Great. So we spend as much time as the, on the water as we can. We're lovers of food, we love to travel and follow our stomachs around the world. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds pretty good. So you know we're lucky and fortunate that we can do that and so yeah that we, it's important to keep fresh. Very important to keep fresh. Yeah. Hard to innovate if you're stale. Yeah, very good point. Well, Paul, look, I just want to say on behalf of Euros Hartleys, congratulations on a wonderful career. Um, it's quite remarkable what you've achieved. And I think for the listeners, you've given us a really good insight. I mean, it's been fantastic. And what you've encapsulated in the way that you've described the impacts of what you do won't go unnoticed. And I thank you for sharing with us. Thanks a lot. And we look forward to the next journey of Orthocell and what you're doing outside of Orthocell as well. Amazing, actually. Yeah, no, look, I very much appreciate the opportunity and, and dearly hope that uh, the audience enjoyed the podcast and take something home from it.
Good on you, Paul. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Tim. See ya. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding the Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian wealth management and diversified financial services company, Euros Hartleys. If you like what you heard, please don't hesitate to tell your friends and subscribe to the podcast through your podcast host of choice. If you have any questions or would like to contact us, please email our fabulous producer, Bridget, on communications at euroshartleys.com or visit our website at www.euroshartleys.com. This podcast has been general information only. Euros Hartleys holds Australian Financial Services Licence 230052.